This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today, we are here to talk about the volume, Histories of Health and Materiality in the Indian Ocean World, Medicine, Material Culture, and Trade Between 1600 to 2000, published by Bloomsbury in 2023. And here we have uh, one of the co-editors, Professor Anne uh, Griston, who is a professor of history at the University of Warwick in the UK and a chair of Asian art at the University of Leiden uh, in the Netherlands. At, uh, she, uh, at Warwick, she co-directs the Global History and Culture Center. The volume uh, is also co-edited by Professor uh, Burton Cletus, who is an assistant professor of history at Jawaharlal Nehru University in India, where he teaches modern Indian history. He specializes in the history of medicine and science and has worked on the institutionalization of Indian medical traditions in colonial and post-independent India. Welcome, Professor, and uh, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk about the book today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted. Thank you. My honor. So the the volume histories of health and materiality in the Indian Ocean World introduces materiality into the study of the history of medicine. This volume hones in on communities across Indian Ocean world and explores how they understood and engaged with health and medical commodities, opening up spatial dimensions and challenging existing approaches to knowledge, power, and the market. It defines therapeutic commodity and explores how different materials were understood and engaged with in various settings and for a number of purposes offering new spatial realms within which the circulation of commodities created new regimes of meaning, histories of health and materiality in the Indian Ocean world demonstrates how medicinal substances have had immediate and far-reaching economic and political consequences in various capacities, from midwifery and umbilical cords to the social spaces of soap and perfumes in early modern India and remedies for leprosy. This volume considers a vast range of material culture and medicinal settings to better understand the history of medicine and its role in global connections since the early 17th century to the present century. We would like first, before we delve into the book, to learn about uh, yourself. If you can share a few words about where you were born, uh, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any mentors you had along the way. Thank you, sure. Yeah, so I grew up in the Netherlands. My name, Anne Gerritsen, maybe suggests that already, and I went to school uh, in the Netherlands, and I went to the kind of school where you um, had to do a lot of different languages, and I enjoyed languages, or in fact, I was 
only good at languages. I wasn't good at anything else. So I did six languages and history in my final exam year. And uh, when I went to the States, um, I then decided to, to do my to do just a year of undergraduate study there. I added uh, Chinese and Japanese. Um, and so I rolled into area studies and I did then Chinese at Leiden University or Chinese languages and civilizations as it was called then. Um, uh, from an interest of of the language um, and area studies gave me an opportunity to learn everything to do with China um, and I want to come back to that a bit later on but area studies as a kind of subject is quite interesting to me um, it's quite different from uh, the discipline that I work in now. But anyway, so I did uh, Chinese studies at uh, my undergraduate, which in the Netherlands then also involved an MA degree. And then I went to the States to do a PhD, and that was also uh, in area studies. So I went to Harvard and I went to the East Asian Languages and Civilizations Department, and I studied um, early modern Chinese. I mean, it wasn't called early modern there. It was called Song Dynasty and Song Yuan Ming uh, was the topic of my PhD as a time period, which is about you know the 10th century up to maybe uh, 1650, roughly speaking. Um, and all my expertise really and my academic conversations were with other China specialists. Um, I moved to the UK after that, and um, by luck for me, I guess, uh, I was uh, able to secure an appointment in a history department because that history department, which is the University of Warwick where I still teach today, was quite interested in having people with area expertise. It's a little bit unusual, and when I got that job, which was in 2001, I know that's a very, very long time ago, um, I was lucky enough that the department had lots of historians, but it also recognized the significance of linguistic skills. So it had also other area experts who worked on India, um, uh, including, for example, at the time, David Hardiman. And um, I joined as a China specialist and I taught early modern China. Um, but you mentioned uh, the Global History Center. I'm actually no longer the director. Guido van Meersbergen, another Dutch colleague, is now the director. Um, but um, we established the Global History Center in 2007. And uh, it was an attempt then to try and, and make hit the field of history, particularly in the UK, but it tapped into interests in other parts of the world, uh, more global, meaning crossing boundaries, doing away with the very conventional um, limitations set by area. Um, and that was a trend that was quite broad. I mean, there was interest in it in part because, for example, the publication of um, uh, various various books, actually. I mean, uh, there are, you know, the standard books that we always hear about that are sort of formative uh, in, in global history. But the interest in the Warwick History Department was really in trying to bring together people who work on India, people who work on China, people who work on Latin America, people who work on different time periods, so not necessarily just a focus on globalization and a kind of, um, you know, late 20th century interest in what happens to institutions and powerful, uh, um, you know, organizations and commercial uh, development. So it it had an interest in the early modern. And because of the people who were involved in it, uh, and that included Maxine Berg and Giorgio Riello as some of my closest colleagues, but also by then the University of uh, Warwick had hired David Arnold, another great um, South Asian specialist from SOAS to com come and join the history department. And together we had quite a strong interest in both uh, colonial and post-colonial worlds and in material culture. 
And all of these things, uh, and we'll come back to that in a moment, I'm sure, tie into what this volume has become. So that interest in material culture for me personally, in terms of my scholarly development, uh, was initially focused mostly on China. And I published um, I published my PhD book, which was on Song Yuan Ming um, uh, religion and local culture. And my second book, uh, which came out only fairly recently uh, in 2020, The City of Blue and White, focused on porcelain and the global trade in porcelain. So these strands are all part of what this book is, partly an interest in area studies and knowing the area well through linguistic skills, but also looking beyond the boundaries of the area, having an interest in the the structures of power, um, you know, of course, uh, politics and uh, imperial and colonial structures that shape life, but looking also at material culture and trade and across the early modern, modern boundary. Uh, and I think those are all themes that are part of my interest, our research interests at Warwick, uh, our particular type of global history that we do at the University of Warwick continue to do in different ways, um, and part of what this volume has become. So that's, to my mind, a little bit of the sort of background of who I am and where I came from. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, uh, I've noticed recently there is a growing interest in bringing uh, materialism and material culture uh, to the study of the Indian Ocean world, works such as by scholars as uh, Elizabeth Lamborn or Nancy Ohm. Uh, brought these methods uh, into reading uh, different sorts of sources, whether they are the objects themselves or how they are uh, contextualized uh, in historical texts. Uh, in your case, you've worked on China, as you've mentioned, and its material culture. And in this volume, uh, you bring in uh, the material uh, uh, or the material culture to the study of health and medicine uh in the indian ocean world um in your opinion as you discuss in your introduction with uh, professor B uh, burton cletus uh, what are the rewards of uh, bringing such a method uh and field of study to other fields such as health and medicine yeah very good question i mean what are the rewards i think the rewards are that you tap into a different set of sources as you already said and i think elizabeth lamborn and, and nancy Elmer are, are excellent examples of doing just that for the field of history i mean art history and history are then often quite closely tied in together but i think they so the the main reward is that it adds a set of materials which are not necessarily as connected to the conventional sources that we know. So, you know, for particularly for the early modern period, the, the East India companies, the kind of European colonial presence, we, we know their presence, we know their role. But looking at materials, I think, so objects, the objects themselves, or the documents that are associated with those objects, um, I think what it allows us to do is to add a different set of agents and actors into the picture. And um, and I think objects, I mean, that's worth discussing if there's time or to think about for listeners whether objects have agency. And I think it's worth considering and taking that seriously. Um, but I think it also adds different geographies. So the spaces that we conventionally look at at the sources that we're very familiar with um, tie us into pre-established or or established, in fact, through those very sources, um, political boundaries, limitations, uh, borders of one kind or another, whether these are cultural or human or um, political. I think the objects have different geographies. They travel in different ways. They push through different boundaries. They have different temporalities because the histories of objects remain kind of inscribed on them in a different way from how a document also, of course, has chronological layers attached to it. But most people who read an object read the text and then tie that into where that text originated. Whereas with an object, you can't just look at where it originated or where it was manufactured. You have to follow its traces. You have to, as the way labor historians call it, or you have to look at its biography as uh, object historians have often drawn on anthropologists' work. 
of course, including a Padurai. But it opens up different uh, trajectories, and those are part of the story of the object and therefore allow us to tell different stories. And I think history has been doing that for a longer time than the field of medicine or the historians of medicine. I think they have been uh, interested. I mean, I'm not suggesting that no one has ever looked at material culture in the field of the history of medic medicine, particularly in the kind of you know, colonial exploits that include plants and animals. Um, of course, um, people have looked at the natural world and that ties in with science and technology, sure. But I think taking a material culture approach allows you to also zoom into not just generic plants or types or ob types of objects, but into individual objects, a specific desk or a specific um you know, a, a ceramic pot that ha held medicinal substances or, you know, things like that. So it opens up, I think, different to different actors, different sources, different spatial connections. And, and that's an important dimension to me because I think it also opens up the Indian Ocean to some extent. But anyway, that may be getting ahead of myself a bit there. But those would, I would say, the rewards of um, bringing in material culture. Excellent. So... Uh, the edited volume is uh, divided into 13 chapters, including the introduction. Uh, I would like to know how did this volume come about? What was the impetus for it and the org organizational work that the editors have undertaken? Yeah, thank you. Well, it's a long history, and I talk a little bit about that in, in various places in the volume, um, not least, of course, because of uh, COVID. But it started actually... Um, quite a long, it had a quite a long trajectory. It started with some funding from the Welcome, which funds, of course, a lot of activities in the field of the history of medicine uh, and medical humanities. And I initially set out when I uh, when I applied for that funding to try and think about the connections between India and China. And I really wanted to bring together a kind of South-South connected story that brought scholars who work on China and scholars who work uh, within the Indian Ocean and particularly in South Asia together in conversation to think about how medical substances were traded within that world. So trying both to expand the Indian Ocean world, which often has very specific broad but still quite specific geographies and the scholars who work on China who are equally limited within a very specific spatial realm. Um, and while uh, I was very pleased to gain, it was only seed funding, it was enough for two workshops um, and uh, three actually, we also had a final one in the UK. But just because of practicalities and, and, and different aspects of it, we ended up having one in China and one in in India at JNU in Delhi, and the group of people who were got involved in both of those um, were basically not so much talking to each other, but still quite focused on uh, you know one group of China scholars, and that's a different volume that's coming out separately, and one group uh, of scholars who are still largely focused on the Indian Ocean world, which is why that's also ended up in the title. And some of that ambition that I originally had, I just had to let go. But there are still traces in the volume of that attempt to open it up more broadly and not to just think of an Indian Ocean uh, world dominated by very specific groups in, indeed, India and, and Europe, as, as it's often um conceived. So the traces in the volume that show an attempt at opening up the Indian Ocean world more broadly. So the organizational work that you asked us about, uh, Burton and I set out to try and be as inclusive as we could of all the participants at the workshop. Not every single person was able to contribute, but quite a lot of the papers that we had selected for uh, being presented there uh, did find their way in their volume. And I say that partly because we ended up working with quite a few um, very early career scholars or even still PhD students, um, which was, you know, joyful and, and, and really exciting to do. But during COVID specifically, that slowed things down quite significantly because 
when everything was extraordinarily difficult for PhD students, particularly students who, I, mean, I, I would have felt, I, mean, I don't know how you feel about that, had an even tougher trajectory than most, having to do work in a limited amount of time and having to make do with the possibilities they had. So COVID undoubtedly made this somewhat more challenging, but we did, I feel, put together a volume that uh, showed the range and we tried to then organize those papers somewhat chronologically. And um, I think you can see that for some, uh, this was really something that that responded well to this idea of, you know, take material culture, draw on material culture as a methodology and bring it into the history of medicine and others um, took a very broad view of what that material culture methodology might be or actually really focused on their own world and tried to open it up and, and look beyond and trace some of these substances and some of these ideas even uh, beyond that. Um, so, so the end result that you see before you has, I think, traces of all of those histories as as all volumes always do they have they you know they they are different from a from a monograph in that sense that it's just one person's trajectory i think you see here you now how about you know 12 people or so struggled with very particular circumstances um and i'm just very pleased at the wide range that we are able to present in the volume here right and it really shows and uh, covering such a vast period and geography which uh, allows the the researcher uh, to explore different areas uh, uh, in the Indian Ocean world, whether thinking about circulation or market integration or consumption uh, of certain medical uh, substances and commodities. Um, in these chapters, uh, what are the deployed methods and approaches in integrating material culture into the study of health and medicine? Yeah, good question. So for me, um, the material culture approach uh, is one that says an object isn't one thing and isn't in a kind of essentialized and static entity, but something that changes over time. So it's something you need to contextualize and you need to think about how and why it gets defined in a certain way or gets given meaning in a certain way. Um, and I think uh, if you do that, over time and space, then that alone is already quite a challenging um, exercise. I try to grapple with that in my chapter on rhubarb. But if you look at some, several of the studies that take an individual uh, medical substance or something like what, what Amrita uh, Chattopadhyay does with perfumes, you know, it's it's trying to say this is not something that at the outset we already know what it is and we're going to follow its traces, but instead we say who is defining it in that particular way. Yeah, take Chalmugra, for example, um, or any of the Ayurvedic drugs, and, and how does it actually get defined and for what reason does it matter for people to define it in that way? And when I say people, I mean also institutions. And when you look at that across time, you see that institutions pop up, especially in the kind of 19th and 20th century, with their own interest and agendas to define these substances in a very particular way and then it can bring to light um, very interesting power relationships between who gets to define a medical substance who gets to say this is what it is this is how it works and this is the the element of that substance that we want to capture for our own purposes and who gets to say whether we can or not and that brings them to light all of those who have something at stake and that includes often um, the local population who have a kind of uh, knowledge accumulated over a very long time but not necessarily not necessarily, although some, sometimes it is, codified knowledge or legally protected knowledge. And then, of course, in quite a lot of these stories, there are the colonial agents in some way or another trying to capture the benefit for it, especially, as you said, in that commercial dimension, when there are substances that are, you know, possibly money-making substances, but of course, those who take it into a more, even more contemporary element, and I'm thinking, for example, by of the chapter by Kaushiki Das, uh, which talks about uh, bio 
prospecting, biopiracy, bioresources. It's not just the, the colonial agents and the uh, local population or the indigenous knowledge that is at stake here. It's also the state government. It's the various institutions that try and codify these substances. It's commercial companies. It's commercial companies based in 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 the West, let's say, but multinational quite often. It's also Indian national institutions and Indian government, state government, national government, that all try to get in on the act. And it's the conflict that arises over that, which at heart is a conflict over ownership, possession, and therefore relies on, on methods of defining um, those substances that 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 come to the surface in that way. So I think in each of the cases, we have material culture as a kind of method, but material culture doesn't exist in a kind of void. And I mean, not to be denigrating about art historians, of course, their art historians work in very sophisticated ways with material culture. But I think when historians work with material culture, they they of necessity have to apply other kind of methods. And those are methods of you know, understanding power, look at power structures, looking at institutional history, looking at different forms of agency, looking at legal conflict, looking at the history of medicine in the way that historical, historically medicinal substances are defined and codified and protected and change over time or adjusted in terms of their workings. So I think it's not a, a, a material culture is not a method that stands in isolation here. It is used really as a methodological approach that enhances and opens up and reveals different aspects of the methodologies that historians conventionally use, including those of imperial and colonial history, of global history, of exploitations, history that draw quite a few of the, the volumes also draw on anthropology, anthropological methods. Um, so I think it's a kind of web or network of methods in which um, material culture stands at the centre and ties in with all of the other methods that uh, historians working on the Indian Ocean uh, are familiar with. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yes, indeed. In reading the chapters, we encounter a different set of sources, ranging from indigenous sources to colonial sources uh, covering uh, this this period. So I was wondering whether we observe different attitude uh, and conceptualization of medical substances and health that really sets apart the indigenous versus the colonial and whether they are uh, intersection intersections at some points uh, when it comes to, let's say, um, commodifying and valuing uh, medicinal substances or uh, or bioprospecting happens to be a uniquely colonial, uh, let's say, phenomenon. So if you can compare and contrast how the indigenous versus the colonial uh, have conceptualized and treated uh, medical substances and viewed health. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And I think putting it as the two of them at odds with each other, so indigenous knowledge and ind indigenous medicinal substances and the colonial world, then I think it creates a binary that's both sort of comforting and, and, and familiar and too simplistic. And I think quite a few of the chapters um, show that it, it is a more complicated story where both are implicated in different ways. And, and that's, you know, challenging, um, but also makes it more interesting. So I think the agents are not as um, set on a binary of indigenous and um, colonial and not as uh, on a binary of colonial and modernizing or modernizing taking the role entirely of the colonial enterprise um, from 
let's say, indigenous sources. And I think that comes through in quite a lot of the chapters. So, for example, uh, Burton Cletus's chapter talks about the circulation of Ayurvedic drugs. It talks really about um, migrants who deal with problems that come to the service specifically when they have been moved forcefully to new areas to work and where they are now working under a colonial regime. And the the what is interesting is that, of course, they face a whole range of medical challenges. And these are medical challenges that we in contemporary language would identify as both somatic, but also uh, mental health related. And they seek solutions for that across the board. So they do, they are exposed to medicine Part of, that's part of the new region that they have moved into and where they are providing this enforced labor. They also write letters back home to say, how do I deal with these problems? And the exchange of letters forms the body of sources that uh, Burton is working with. But it shows that they are not easily the, the migrant workers who write these letters and the Vaidan who's returning the letters, not as simply defined as saying, you know, this is the this is your indigenous medicinal uh, practice and this is what you must use. Um, the reality is that it has to become some kind of blend, some kind of adaptation to um, the local world. And something comes out of that that is more blended and more, more hybrid, if you will. And I think that same kind of story of complex relationships that are not as easily separated into one and the other actually appears in quite a few of the sources. So Malavika Bini's article, I think, crosses that boundary. I think my story on rhubarb does. Um, I think David Arnold's chapter on toxic trading also shows in different contexts that indigenous knowledge and indigenous ways of thinking about what is a health providing uh, substance and what is a dangerous or poisonous or toxic substance is is mediated by the context. And Jane Buckingham's chapter on Chalmugra also shows that it none of these substances are um, static, as I said right at the start. So if you take a substance from one place and move it somewhere else, um, whether that is into a colonial world or into um you know, a, a contemporary multinational world, that substance changes. That substance no longer has all of the context attached to it and becomes something different, has to be thought of as something different and no longer is, you know, something pure or original. I think those meaning those words are somewhat meaningless. So looking precisely at the ways in which those connections get blurred, those identities get more layered, more complex, more challenging to identify between, let's say, the indigenous and the colonial uh, 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 colonial exploiter of those substances, or also, um, you know, those who uh, want to capture the commercial benefit over the course of the 20th century. Different agents are involved, and the, each of them try to identify what the substance is and uh, capture the medicinal benefits of it. Um, but struggle to do so entirely on their own terms. They have to negotiate with some of those other meanings that are attached to the object. And I think what your question beautifully lends itself to is to point to why material culture and the, the kind of technology or the, the, the methodology of using that as a technique to identify those different layers, to see how they become both layered on top of each other, but also in conflict with each other, how some erase other levels of meaning. That's, I think, where you see how useful material culture studies can be as a skill of looking at that, the complexities of the world that isn't one that identifies one entirely separate world that is indigenous and one entirely um, isolated layer on top of it that might be colonial and one further layer on top of that that is doing away with both of those and is a kind of, you know, 20th, 21st century modern. None of that exists in separate in separation or in isolation. Uh, indeed, thank you. That's that's really useful. Uh, another maybe comforting binary uh, in reading the history of medicine and in the Indian Ocean world is that, 
you have uh, this contrast between uh, colonial science or modern science versus uh, so-called folk beliefs, uh, religion, uh, occult sciences, and magic. Uh, and in the way uh, medical substances are made sense of and used and contextualized within certain cultures. So um, how do these chapters tackle uh, this binary between uh, the modern science or the colonial science and supposedly its rationality and objectivity in treating these substances versus uh, the, the local, which is usually uh, labeled as traditional and uh, occult and, and so on? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really powerful question. And I think in, in many ways, the final chapter, I don't know if you had look, had the chance to look at Harish Narendas's final chapter, which tackles that really, uh, uh, you know, in, in quite a uh, maybe characteristic uh, um, challenging way, I would say. Um, so um, he is, of course, a historian of medicine and um, based in, in anthropology as his um, discipline. And his chapter tackles precisely this um, kind of construction, I would say, of two worlds, one in which there is um, traditional folk, me folk medicine or there is this kind of idea that there is a, a world in which... Um, uh, that exists in isolation, as it were, or and sometimes even a kind of timeless uh, isolation, which is the conventional world or the traditional world or whichever word you want to um, uh, use, and that that exists in contrast with uh, a modern, a rational, uh, often associated with the Western world. And the contrast between the two comes up in many of them, many of the chapters, and in many of the chapters, it's posted as a kind of conflict between power or between, and that's commercial or political power or power over a labor force or power over the intellectual um, ownership, the sort of ways of defining it. Um, in in Harish Narendas's chapter, it features uh, also as a kind of response to the emphasis on material culture in a kind of critical way. And so what Harish sets out to do is to, by presenting a number of vignettes at the chapter, at the start of the chapter, um, showing the different ways in which the separation is impossible between the two worlds. So the individual responses to treatment, the individual uh, practices of the different um uh, therapists that are brought to the to the foreground in his his chapter um, all struggle with that binary and all actually um, make it impossible to separate the two worlds and and um, what he is suggesting that if we focus on material culture and if we highlight ma the materiality of therapeutics in other words if we focus on those substances that can be identified as a material substance and therefore gain a name and a and a process then by doing that we are focusing on on the biomedical world and we are thereby actually also dismissing the value and power of the the folk medicine or traditional medicine if you will but which is a far more complex world in which, of course, there are also medicinal and therapeutic treatments, but the therapeutic treatments are much broader than that. They form a much wider complex of practices, of dietary practices, of spiritual practices, of routines and uh, taboos, of uh, timed periods in which you must follow certain guidelines. And by contrasting the material culture world with a conventional world in which those are not exclusively uh, the, the, the therapeutic methods, um, he is kind of pushing uh, those who have studied or have looked at material culture in the volume into the world of saying, you know, you are all dismissing the much more complex world of traditional therapeutics. And so his his voice was actually um, uh, quite a critical one to say, actually, um, you know, you get a very asymmetrical production of pluralism, as he says in his title. Um, you call it pluralism by opening up all these different options, but actually it's very asymmetrical. And by bringing in 
the material culture, you are actually creating that asymmetry that doesn't need to be there, that doesn't actually, uh, it, that isn't part of those particular kind of um, settings, those those vignettes that he, he creates. And I think, uh, I mean, for me, it was a great pleasure working with uh, Harish Narayandas, having somebody so senior, somebody so experienced in the field of the history of medicine, somebody so critical of uh, of the various methods that we might have used, but so willing to have his voice included in this volume as a kind of counter voice to uh, some of the other topics that we approached. Um, I feel that that really adds something to to the volume. And I think um, I don't know how easy it is for for readers to pick up on the the kind of counter voice that he's offering if they've been reading you know, chapter one to 12. Um, you know, that may come as a bit of a surprise, uh, but I hope people continue to read into chapter 13 and see this contrasting voice and see that uh, for from an anthropological perspective, looking at the ways in which medicine works today, uh, of course, he places that in a historical perspective. Um, there are also some asymmetries that emerge out of this process. Um, I mean, you know, I have a, an ongoing and very healthy and spirited a conversation with him where I feel that that isn't necessarily the outcome and not necessarily the gist of how the chapters have have dealt with that particular binary that you have proposed that comforting one of those many comforting binaries um but if anyone is interested that's the chapter to read to see um a sort of uh, contradictory voice in the volume great uh, uh another uh, I would say characteristic of the volume is that most of the chapters uh, center South Asia and, and, and narrating the history of health and materiality. <clears throat> and as someone who is an expert on Chinese material culture, um, where do you see future directions in integrating um, Ch Chinese uh, studies uh, of, of medicine and health and materiality with the rest of the Indian Ocean world, given you know the the close connections uh, between Chinese materia medica uh, with the rest of the Indian Ocean worlds. Some scholars have started the work on looking at how uh, Persian texts were translated into uh, Chinese, and others are looking at shipwrecks. So, do you do you see other future directions in which we can explore these connections between China with the rest of the Indian Indian Ocean world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's still that was my original ambition, and and you know, other things happened in the meantime. But it's still what I want to come back to to try and and create conversations that get get people again out of their comfortable regional expertise. And I think the problem with it, exactly as you just said, is the linguistic skills. It really requires people who can read a very wide range of, of languages, but those people exist and could, will hopefully continue to exist. And, and they are. Um, and that isn't just about reading, let's say, Sanskrit and Chinese or Persian and um, uh Japanese, let's say. Um, I think there are many other ways of doing it. And if we have some experts who can read all of the languages, we will also have opportunities for conversations between people who read some of those languages. And I think it's about opening up the geographical spaces. And I think Indian Ocean world, I think, needs to take account more move somewhat more inland perhaps so including a little bit more uh, of north asia which gets us into that very shared territory in which um you know i mean central asia i think to claim that central asia is part of the indian ocean world may be a stretch and i'm not suggesting that every ocean person also becomes somebody who does central asian studies but i think we we it, it's a loss if we just close our eyes to the extent to which that those spatial connections existed. And that means also that the Indian Ocean world becomes blended with the Nanyang, the South China Sea and the South China Sea world. Those are not separate worlds. And those areas in which they meet as scholars of those areas know extremely well are blended areas in which these uh, texts and substances and merchants and consumers 
a part of the same world. So my my aim would still be to try and bring together people who work mostly on China, but are willing to look beyond, and people who work mostly on, you know, on the Persian heritage, but are also willing to look more towards China or 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 South Asia, and and the Indian Ocean itself, of course. You know that is already a massively uh, diverse space in which we know all sorts of agents travelled, uh, who had who leave traces, who uh, are part of the landscape, who shape the postal spaces around it. So I think these are conversations we need to keep having, and we need to keep um, being open-minded to the approaches that seem very embedded in those spaces. And when I say very embedded in those spaces, I mean, uh, for example, to in my experience, quite a lot of the people who work on South Asia specifically, even if you encourage them to think more broadly, um, and I say them because clearly I'm not an expert on South Asia, as you uh, as you pointed out. I mean, I have no um, claim to to say anything about that, but I do feel that uh, it goes beyond saying that's really empire. If you ask somebody who works on South Asia to say look beyond the boundaries and think about something that's bigger than that, then they often go to empire and the agents of empire. Um, and I think we can do better than that. I think there is more to be discovered there and more to be gained from those conversations that get us outside of um, the history of empire, which I personally feel... Um, you know, it's it's. I'm not suggesting it's not important, but it's not the only thing that exists. And for me, global history is really a methodology. Global history is really nothing about space and nothing about the entire globe. It's about looking for connections, identifying where the conflicts arise within those uh, intested spaces. And that, I think, is a methodology that would create a different uh, spatial realm and would open up spaces for conversations that include China, the Chinese linguistic world or the Sinophone world, as well as South Asia, as well as the Persian world. And, and it, you know, empire may be part of that, but may not be. That would be my, my view on that. Yes, definitely. We need less of that empire, I guess. Okay, uh, good. I'm glad and, you agree. <laughs> and lots of connected history or even you know, reimagining these histories away from these uh, sorts of frameworks. And definitely the Indian Ocean world is not just a geographic container, as historians have shown. The frontiers of the Indian Ocean really extend as far as uh, the ideas, languages, the commodities and peoples uh, who are associated with the Indian Ocean and its cultures uh, can, you know, be found. Um uh, so in, in working on these chapters, have you came across any surprises, any, uh, I don't know, head-scratching uh, moments where you were like, wow, I, I didn't expect this, or this is really interesting that you would like to share? Ah, lots of them, because for me, I was entering into such a, such a different world. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I, I think probably mostly I would say the, the, uh, the, the extent to which these substances traveled. I mean, you know, the the chapter on Chalmugra, for example, finding ourselves in 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 different parts of the world that I hadn't expected to travel in, and that's because if you bring a scholar uh, from New Zealand over, then you know a whole different space turns up. The idea that you can take bodies convicts, the bodies of convicts, and think of those as actually uh, material substances. That I found quite surprising. I thought the ways in which, um, for me, again, as an outsider, as an as an as a you know, a tourist, as it were, or a visitor in the world of, of uh, South Asian medicine, um, the idea that, that you know the role of what what is from apparently familiarly called tribal knowledge, which is a term that I wasn't familiar with in using the way in which that continues to play through in today's political landscape of who owns some of these substances, who owns the knowledge, who, how do those bits of information get uh, transmitted through very different political structures. There was lots of it. The, the idea that you could write a whole chapter on either perfumes or soap or 
you know, it 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 has been a really exciting uh, dis- voyage of discovery for me. A very long way away from from Chinese porcelain, that's for sure. Yeah, great. <clears throat> so, who who do you hope will read this book, and and what sort of impact would you like it to have? Oh well, I hope Indian Ocean historians read it and and say and and think that they need to stretch out their geographies. I hope that historians of medicine will read it and think that they need to uh, continue to and increase their familiarity with material culture studies. I hope that historians of empire will read it and think, no, actually, we don't need to keep uh, uh, repeating uh, the, the 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 British Empire structures. Uh, I hope that some historians of China will look at it and say, oh, that's interesting. One can, as a China historian, venture out into different fields. I hope that people will read it for the variety uh, of elements in there and will recognize the work of some some juniors, some very senior scholars, and will take away uh, ideas for for more research. I think there is really a, a world of of um, sources uh, that can be discovered, and that very interesting work can be done. And some of it does require linguistic skills, but some of it also is available in different uh, versions and translations that make this really interesting uh, material to work with, and that the history of medicine is not um, a hermetically closed world, but one that travels uh, along global trajectories, I would say. And I would add also for graduate students, the rich bibliographies of each chapter uh, are quite useful in exploring uh, the field as well. Uh, thank you so much. We've taken a lot of your time and uh, we've benefited a lot from this conversation. Um, we would like to ask you the final question, which is, uh, what are you working on now? Can you tell us about your current and future projects or what you hope to work on? Well, I already hinted that I would love to work more on this, um, but I haven't quite got a plan fixed on that continues this particular plan. I'm working on a chapter right now for a volume uh, called Inland Empires, which is another challenge to the idea that empires have a very set pattern that I think the concept of empire needs to be opened up and broadened out and that various actors, indigenous agents also form political structures that could be defined as empire um, uh, is a productive space to work in. And and I'm very pleased that it brings together scholars who work on very different spaces, um, uh, but including the Indian Ocean world. And I think... um, uh, it it will be an interesting study, but that's just one of the chapters. I've mostly been writing quite varied chapters, um, and I haven't yet embarked on the new, the thing that's going to occupy me for the next ten years or so. Um, so watch this space; it'll be, you know, I'll get there quite soon. I hope. And we hope to have you back uh, to the podcast to talk about these fascinating projects. Thank you so Thank much you. for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Thank you. And thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored with Professor Anne Khritsen, uh, histories of health and materiality in the Indian Ocean world, medicine, material culture, and trade between 1600 to 2000, published by Bloomsbury in 2023. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.